So tonight we begin a new series entitled Instrument, and it's a series on Esther. And I'm really excited about this series. And most of you are probably thinking, you have to say that, right? I mean, what am I going to get up here and say, like, this series is not going to be that good. Uh, the last series was better, but hopefully you guys keep coming and you get something out of it. And also, if you know me, you know I get super excited about, like, everything. So, uh, you know, you, you can take that with a grain of salt. But for real, I am really excited about this series. I've never uh, spent this much time in this book. I've never preached through this book before. And this is such an interesting and complex and unique book. Here's why. In the book of Esther, God is never mentioned. He's never mentioned. God never speaks. In fact, there's almost nothing religious at all in the entire book. And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, why is it in the Bible? Right? Like, shouldn't that be like one of the first requirements of like the books in the Bible? It has to speak about God. It has to have God speaking. It has to be some kind of conversation there. But yet, Esther, the story of Esther, there's no mention of God and God never speaks. But see, what the author is communicating here is that just because God never speaks in terms of what you're reading, it does not mean that God is silent. He's in fact involved in the entirety of the story through all these things that seem like coincidences. All of these little pieces and moments in Esther's life, God is intimately involved in working to fulfill his promise and his plan in her life. And this is why I'm excited about this book. It's because this is how God works in your life and my life most of the time. He works silently. When we don't notice it, when we think we're in control, when we just, you know, chalk things up to being coincidence or, you know, interesting circumstances, God is involved in all of these things. The professor and author, her name is uh, Karen Jobes, and she says this, The providence of God is his invisible governance of all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. This is God's providence. God works providentially in the lives of his people when they don't notice it, when we believe him to be silent, when we think we're in control, when we just, they say things are coincidental, they are in fact providential. And we sense this actually in our culture, right? There's a, there's a feeling and a belief and a notion that there is someone or something out there Maybe a divine energy, some type of force. There is something that is helping and organizing life. That is looking for our good and some type of thing. And so we call it different things. People will chalk it up to karma or some type of energy. And they're searching for the reality and the knowledge of who this thing is or what this thing is. And the book of Esther gives that feeling and that notion, that belief, a name. The book of Esther wants us to realize that it's not a divine force, it's not a divine energy. It's in fact God, capital G, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, who's working providentially, though we may believe him to be silent, he is in fact very much involved. And this is what we see all throughout her life, as he will take her through some really crazy twists and turns, things that seem coincidental, but in fact he is being faithful to her in every moment. But before we jump in, I have to give you a little bit of background, what's happening in the story. It takes place in a very interesting political environment and a very a peculiar environment for the people of God. So if you read in the Old Testament, there's a pattern that 
continues to repeat itself all throughout the Old Testament of how God works in the, peop- the lives of the people of God. Here's how it look, works. The people follow after God, and then they reject him, and then they're exiled or enslaved, and then they return to God, and then God restores them. This happens time and time and time again. If you look all the way back to the famous story of the Israelites, the people of God enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and Moses comes, and he is the deliverer, and the people return to God, and then God brings them out of Egypt, and he takes them through the wilderness, and he restores them into the promised land. When they get into the promised land, they begin to create a kingdom. It starts with judges, and then it's King Saul and King David and King Solomon. And after King Solomon dies, the people of God are, are starting to reject God again. They're like, no, we're going to try this. We're going to do this. We're not about that anymore. And the kingdom gets divided, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then the Assyrians come in, and they take over the northern kingdom, and they enslave and exile the the people of the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians come and take over those of the southern kingdom. And they take over also the whole known area. The Babylonian empire was massive. And they take the people of God out of the promised land, out of Jerusalem, out of all their towns, and they put them in Babylon. And there they stay until, coincidentally, Persia comes And Persia comes through, and they conquer and take over the Babylonian Empire. And Cyrus the Great, the Persian emperor, decides that he is going to allow the people of God access back to the promised land. They can go back to Jerusalem. They can rebuild the walls and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And the book of Nehemiah and Ezra in the Old Testament recount this story. And this is exactly where we find the book of Esther. See, the book of Esther tells the story of a whole host of Jewish people, of people of God that decided not to go back to Jerusalem. They're having a good life in Babylon. They like Babylon. They like the culture. Things are going well for them. They don't want to go back rebuilding walls. So they're going to stay in Babylon. And they're Persian now, and they're going to assimilate in the culture. And Esther and Mordecai and the characters in this story have decided to remain. But as you see, they hide their identity. During the story when Esther takes place, Confucius is born in the Far East, Socrates is born, Greece is undergoing its golden age and creating the foundations of modern democracy. This is what's happening in this time period as we read this story in Esther. And so where we pick up in chapter 1 is in this uh, town called Susa. It's where the citadel is and the fortress. It's uh, where the king is. And this is modern-day Iran. And here we read about this king, King Ahasuerus, who is known more famously by his Greek name, King Xerxes I. And there's a a Greek historian, his name is Herodotus, and he, he speaks about Xerxes, and he says, here's what you need to know about this man. He's tall, he's brilliant, he is ambitious, but he's ruthless, and he is a jealous lover. And so this king, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, he is the king of the Persian Empire now after Cyrus the Great. He is a dangerous and powerful man. The empire of the Persians at this time stretches from India to Ethiopia. It is huge. And so we pick up the story here where he's having a drinking party. This is a common occurrence. They're going to drink. They're going to drink a lot because they actually believe that when they got drunk, they would connect with the spiritual realities, right? Right? 
And so they started drinking and they got drunk and they're connecting with the spiritual realities or whatever they're thinking and they're doing. And in his drunken stupor, King Xerxes said, hey, listen, I want you to go get the queen. The queen is Queen Vashti and she is known to be beautiful and she is beloved. He says, go get the queen and I want you to parade her around for me because I want everyone at this party to see my wife. I want them to see how beautiful she is. I want them to see my queen and your queen to not only to just kind of show off, but also to inspire patriotism was a common occurrence. And so the servants go and they tell Queen Vashti, hey, you need to come out of the king. He wants to parade you around again and do your thing. Okay, come on. And she says, no, I'm done. I'm done with this ignorant sexist king. Like, I'm done with it. It's over. She's like, no, I'm good. I'm going to stay here. And the king was like, okay, no big deal, right? No, like he was not about that. He was not happy. He was humiliated. He's a jealous lover, remember? He is humiliated because the queen is saying, no, I'm not going to follow your commands. And so the king meets with all of his advisors. They're all men. And they begin to have this conversation. And they're like, listen, what do we got to do? Because you're humiliated now. We can't have this happen. She has a lot of influence over the women of the empire. And if this word gets out that you haven't done anything, what could happen? Maybe the women will rise up and say no to their husbands. Maybe there'll be a sexual strike. Oh my goodness. So we have to do something. So they decide to depose her. Now we don't know what that means. Maybe they killed her. Maybe they just said, okay, it's time for you to go and leave. And so they depose her so that they don't have a rebellion. And then here's what the king does. He's just a wonderful person in this story. He says, and here's what we're going to do. I need a new queen. So I'm going to host a beauty and sex competition. The Bible's real, guys. Like it's no joke. Okay, so he's like, I'm going to have a beauty and sex competition. I want you to bring all the beautiful women, and I'm going to judge them, and I'm going to have sex with them, and then I'm going to figure out which one of them will be the queen. And this takes place over many years. And the men had it rough, too, because every single year he would pick 500 young men, and he'd castrate them and make them his servants. This is not a culture anybody wants to be a part of, okay? Like, this is not a desirable place to be. You know, one of the things that we see when you look at history is that every single culture is broken and flawed. You, you, you read these stories and you're like, I, I can't even imagine. Our culture is broken and flawed. Their culture is broken and flawed. It's, it's, it's a picture of the human heart. So we read here about this king and he's this broken man. He's a man that nobody wants to be around. He objectifies women and he treats everybody else like trash. And he's having this beauty and sex competition to find a queen. And this is where we pick up our story. In chapter 2, here's what it says. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. So he is a believer. He's a person and and a, a follower of God. He's the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So like, what does that mean? Okay, so he was in Jerusalem when the Babylonians came through, and he was taken from Jerusalem and exiled in Babylon, and he's now decided to stay. He doesn't want to go back to his city, his homeland. He likes it in Babylon. He's doing well there. Things are okay. So he stays there, and he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. So Esther is his cousin. 
for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, and she was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Esther's had a hard life. Her father and mother have passed away, and her cousin Mordecai has decided to take her under his care and to care for her and to raise her. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai for the beauty and sex competition, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So when this order goes out among the city and the empire to bring all the beautiful women to the king so he can objectify them and he can judge them and then decide who he wants to make queen... Mordecai tells Esther, it's time to go. You're going to go to the harem. This person, Haggai, is the leader. She's the leader of the harem, take care of you. You're going to enter the competition. And if you're reading like me, you're reading like, I already hate Mordecai, right? Like, why would he do this? She's had a hard life as it is. Her father and mother have passed away. She's being raised by her cousin, and now Mordecai says, it's time for you to go too. You're beautiful. It's time to enter the competition. Like Mordecai is a believer and a follower of God. He knows God's word. He knows God's heart and his desires and his decrees. He knows that this is wrong. He probably is even sensing that he should hide her. He should figure out some other way, but we're never told his motives and intentions. But the author wants us to feel that. The silence here is deliberate. Man, he's a hard character to like. He's a hard person to like because you just can't wrap your mind around why he would allow this to happen. And so he tells her to go and, and she goes and the king takes notice of her. Because it says that she's beautiful. And so it says the young woman pleased him. This is Esther and won his favor. That is the king. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food with seven chosen women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. And Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So Esther enters into the harem and she's, she's in the competition. And Mordecai's told her, you know, don't let anyone know that uh, you're a Jew, because that'll disqualify you from the competition. So she doesn't know. No one knows Mordecai's a Jew either. They're hiding, concealing their identity. And we're also not told how Esther feels. We're not told if she's mad, if she's angry, if she's just so defeated because she's been through so much, she just goes along with it. Or if even she sees it as an opportunity to advance. Maybe she thinks she can become queen. She's going to have to make some decisions and do some questionable things, but... It's an opportunity for great power and influence. We are not told. And it's really easy to read this and to like cast judgment on Mordecai or to cast judgment on Esther. In fact, the very first uh, translators of this book in 2nd century BC decided to add an explanation, a commentary to this book to try to justify Mordecai and Esther's behavior because it's really uncomfortable because it's morally unjustifiable. So they're trying to like, make them look better than they are, but that's not the author's intention. The author wants you to see 
that they're broken. The author wants you to not know their intentions and motives so you can feel the difficulty of navigating this world. They're trying to advance. They're trying to make a life for themselves. They're concealing their identity. I think also the author wants all of us to feel some kind of relationship with Mordecai and Esther because we're a lot like them. I know I'm a lot like them. It's so easy to make morally questionable decisions in a broken world, right? We bend to things all the time that we shouldn't. We engage in opportunities that we shouldn't. We promote and celebrate things that we shouldn't all the time because we're looking to to live a comfortable life, to engage in a culture that isn't maybe the way that we want our culture to look and be, but it is what it is, and here's where we are, and we need to advance, and we need to to be a part of it. We know that we should stand firm in God's decrees, that we should not be afraid of what we believe and, and who God is and his design, but we don't do that. Not most of the time. We bend and we fall and we kind of negotiate our decisions and we're morally ambiguous people. But yet what we see in this story is that God uses morally ambiguous and morally unjustifiable people like us. People that bend and celebrate and engage in things we shouldn't. He is still involved providentially. He uses your good decisions and your bad decisions to fulfill fulfill his promises and his plan. So at this point in the story, there's actually no drama yet. You've noticed that. There's no drama. They're just living there trying to make a life for themselves. The king wants a new queen, so he has this competition. Mordecai's like, hey, Esther, here's your chance. Let's go. She goes. We don't know what he's thinking, why he would do that. We don't know how Esther's feeling. Was she really mad about it? Was she saying, hey, it actually is a good opportunity. I'm going to try it out. We don't know any of this. And yet the king has noticed her. He's made her the top of the harem. And then he falls completely in love with her says this, when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. We're not given the intentions and motives of Esther, but we're given some interesting clues. It says that when she's in there, she is looking to win his favor. There seems to be, the way that the author is writing it, an intention. She desires to be made queen. She's going to take advantage of this opportunity. And so the king falls in love with her. And he elevates her to queen. And then everyone's happy because he cuts taxes. And he starts giving gifts out. And he has another drinking party and celebrating Esther's feast. She's now the queen. You see, this book is a very controversial book. Not just because it's really honest. But it's a controversial book because most biblical scholars believe that the author was a man. And he's about to tell a story, the deliverance of God's people by a brave and strong and very ordinary, in many ways, woman who is going to outwit the entire Persian empire 
and bend political power and influence to herself to save her people. She's going to be willing to stand up and sacrifice her own life for the sake of her people. And she has to overcome two major things in this culture. One, she's a woman, and two, she's a Jew. You see, a lot of people that have studied this book and spent time in this book have a really hard time with Esther. In fact, uh, many liberals read the book of Esther and they don't like her. They believe that she's not a role model because she just kind of gave in to the patriarchy. But the real role model is Vashti who said, no, nah, I'm done, I'm out. She was deposed. But, and then, but those that are conservative look at Esther too and they say, well, she's not really a role model because look at the kind of stuff she's doing. I mean, she's not standing up. She should not be having sex with this king just like all these other women. Why is she looking to win the, you know, the crown of becoming queen of an empire that is not her own? She knows God's word. She knows God's desires, but she engages in, engages in these things. But see, the author is making her not only a leader, but a role model, someone to learn from, someone to see, because she's a lot like us. She's broken. She's flawed. She makes decisions that aren't morally justifiable. She's really trying to figure it out in this culture that is broken and flawed. And at this point in the story, it's very interesting because both Mordecai and Esther are concealing their identity. They believe in the God of the Bible. They trust and follow after God. But they don't want anyone to know because they know that if people know it's going to hurt their credibility. She's going to probably lose the crown. There's a lot of things that could happen to them. It's going to be very unfortunate. So they're hiding. They're just like acting like everybody else. To everyone else's eyes, they are just Persians living in Babylon. They look, they dress, they act, they engage like everybody else. There are no distinctives at this point in the story. Does that sound like you? Right? (laughs) Oftentimes it sounds like me. We live in a broken and flawed culture that is difficult to navigate and it's hard to know what it looks like to be a faithful presence of Christ in the city, what it looks like to have distinctives of faith. And it's so much easier just to blend in. It's so much easier just to look at like everybody else, act, dress, engage in opportunities like everybody else. You know, there's a, a, a prayer that Jesus prays in John 17 and he says that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. Very famous statement. Be in the world, but not of the world. The Apostle Paul says something similar. He says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by faith in Christ Jesus. So what does does that mean, to be in the world, but not of the world? Does that mean that we have to be like the Amish in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and just not engage in any modern luxuries or opportunities? What does it mean to be in the world but not of the world, to hold to distinctives but to engage and celebrate the city? It's a difficult question and many have sought to kind of put labels, right? Maybe some of you have experienced that. You've grown up in the church. You've experienced churches that have given labels that have told you, don't dance. Man, if you dance, that's not okay. Don't dance. Don't drink alcohol. Don't listen to certain types of music. Don't watch certain movies. Maybe some people have told you this. Hey, if you want to be in the world but not of the world, you got to put a Bible on the corner of your desk, right, at work. So people walk by. What's that? Oh, that's a Bible. 
Want me to tell you about it? What does it mean to be in the world but not other world? People will tell you, here's what it looks like in regards to how you use your money, how you manage your money. Here are luxuries you can enjoy and you can't enjoy. And probably all of us here, when people make blanket statements and tell us, here's what it means to be in the world but not other world, we're like, nah, I'm, I'm going the other way, <laughs> right? Because we don't want to be told what it means because it is a confusing thing. It's a hard thing to figure out what does it truly mean to hold to the distinctives of your faith but to engage and celebrate a culture and a city in the way that's appropriate. It's difficult. But probably most of us have swung the pendulum to the other side, right? We never actually think along these lines. When's the last time you've asked yourself that question? You know, missionaries, when they prepare to go overseas, uh, to, to move to a country, a new culture, to love people, to care for people, to serve people, they spend a lot of time before they go learning the culture. They go, they visit, they talk with people. The reason they do this is because when they, want to, when they move there, they want to be able to engage the culture, to love the culture, to celebrate the really wonderful things of the culture, but they don't want to lose their distinctives. They want to be able to hold to their faith in a way that is appropriate, in a way that is right. I mean, when's the last time you've done that here? You've thought to yourself, what does it look like for me to love this city and celebrate this city, but not marry it, not be conformed by it, for not to, to control how I think and how I view myself and how I act and how I speak, but to hold to my distinctives, to love the city and to love people in the way that I should. You know, I think one of the things that I love about this story is that God is going to work in their midst even though they're acting as if they're ashamed of him. They don't, want no one, they don't want anyone to know what they believe. They're hiding their faith. They're acting like everybody else. They're making decisions that are difficult, and yet God is going to work faithfully in their life for good. And so look what happens next as, he, as God interacts in their life. It says this, in those days, Mordecai, so now Queen Esther is, is queen and Mordecai's back to whatever he's doing. He was sitting at the king's gate. The king's gate would have been where legal decisions were made. It was kind of like the center of the city where people would hang out. And Bictham and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Esther and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. What a coincidence, right? Esther has now been made queen. They don't understand why all of this is happening. They're just taking advantage of opportunities. Esther's now been elevated to queen. Mordecai goes about his business. He's just hanging out sitting in the king's gate, and he overhears, coincidentally, a conversation about two men that want to kill the king. And he goes back to Esther, his cousin, who coincidentally was elevated to queen. And he tells her, and she has also coincidentally formed this relationship with the king that is 
unbelievable in the sense that he loves her. I mean, he cut taxes. He loves her. And she tells him, and he investigates it and finds it to be true. And now Esther is elevated even higher in the king's eyes, and it's known of Mordecai's loyalty. And God is going to use this throughout this series. These events that just seem circumstantial, seem coincidental, that are actually providential. God is working in their midst. I think most of us uh, believe that we can navigate life successfully through thoughtful planning, hard work, dedication, wise living. We'll be able to successfully navigate the traps and the tricks of life for the most part. But all of us can look back on our life, as we heard in Justin's story, of the way that things happened that just seemed coincidental. It just seemed happenstance. It's a great exercise, actually, to go this week and just to look at your life and write down some of the things that just seemed like coincidences. How did you get to where you are today? What are the things that had to happen? What are the people that you had to meet? What are the opportunities that you just decided to take advantage of that you never thought you would? What are the people that have come across your path? What are all those coincidental things that have led you to where you are today? And depending upon the, the place that you are today, you may either look back on your life and say, wow, I can't believe that I'm here. It's amazing, all those things, because I love where I'm at. I'm excited about the future. Or you may look back on your life and be like, man, I, how did I get here? That one decision, that, that one interaction, I think that is what brought me to this moment today. You see, depending upon where you sit right now, whether you're in a place of disappointing results and heartache and sorrow, or whether you're in a place of joy and excitement about what is lying ahead, there's a tendency that we, we have, and, and here's a tendency, is one to either inflate our wise decisions and to look back on our life when we do that exercise and say, man, I made some really good decisions. I was really dedicated. I, I was really wise, and that's why I am where I am. Or we inflate our unwise decisions. Man, I can't believe I did that. If I would have just made a different decision, everything would have been different. My life would have been better than it is right now. I wouldn't have these disappointing results. I wouldn't be in this place if I... Oh, I can't believe I did that. You see, your choice matters. I don't want you to not hear that. We all know that. We all seek to make wise decisions. No one's going to leave tonight and go to work and be like, I'm going to make a really bad decision and I can't wait. Right? We, we make unwise decisions all the time because we think they're wise. We make foolish decisions because we think they're good. And we find out later the consequences of it that we were, in fact, wrong. And on the flip side, sometimes when we make good decisions that we've investigated and we know this is right, it does prove to be good it brings joy and it brings growth. But here's the, the thing that we all know is true. None of those things are guarantees, right? We all know that bad decisions can lead to good things. Have you had that happen? You made a bad decision. It was an unwise decision. And you're like, wow, I, I was not expecting these results, but I'm very thankful for them. And we also know that your good decisions can lead to disappointing results, they can lead to sorrow. You could think to yourself, I did everything right and that person got promoted? 
I did everything right, and now I'm in this situation? This is the, the struggle of living in a broken and flawed world, is that oftentimes we get what we don't deserve, at least we think we don't deserve it, or we don't get what we believe we deserve. It's hard to navigate. It's difficult to navigate. And here is the promise that we see in the story of Esther. God is working all of these coincidences in your life providentially. He is working in your life through your wise decisions and your unwise decisions, through your good decisions and your bad decisions. You are not changing his plan. His promises to you are sure and they are good. If you love and trust and follow him, he is working through all of that. Mordecai and Esther's decisions aren't great here, and yet look what he's doing. He's working his plan in their life. You see, the Apostle Paul tries to get this in our head when he says in Romans 8.28 that God works some things in your life as long as they're good decisions for good. That's not the verse, right? God says that he is working all things in your life for good for those that love him. See, if, you're, if you love and you trust and you're following after Jesus Christ, there's going to be times where you make decisions that you're like, ah, oh, that was not a good decision. Where you're just looking to blend in, you're trying to figure out how to navigate the culture. God is working in everything. Your wise decisions, your unwise decisions, your good decisions, and your bad decisions, you are not going to change his plan. You're not going to alter his promises. They are sure because he loves you. Right? That's a promise of the cross. If you believe in the gospel that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to live a life that you couldn't, to die a death you deserve on the cross, he was buried and he came forth from the grave alive. And he offers you a relationship with him by faith, not by your good decisions. Not, God is not looking at you saying, make some really wise decisions and then maybe I'll give you salvation and work good in your life. No, no, no. He's just saying, do you love me? Do you trust me? Do you believe in me? If you believe in me in faith, I'm working good in your life, both now and eternally. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You can't, in fact. See, this is the promise that is given to us. Albert Einstein has this great quote. He says, coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. There are no such thing as coincidences. It's only providence. Just sometimes God is silent. A lot of the times God is silent. We don't see him. We don't see he's working. We're trying to figure out how to live in this world. We're bending the things we shouldn't. We're blending in because it's easier. We're trying to make right decisions, but we're not because our hearts are, are not always devoted. Our motives are mixed. We're like Esther and Mordecai, and yet God is always faithful. If you believe and trust and follow him, he is working good in your life now and eternally. You're not going to change his plan. Any decisions you made in the past that were unwise, they're not affecting what God is going to do in your life. And any wise decisions are not going to guarantee you something. God is working for your good if you love him. I think it's fitting to end with the words of Jesus in Matthew 28. He says this, he says, go, therefore, and make disciples. See, he's telling us to go. It's not easy to go. It's hard to know the right decisions and to navigate things, especially because we're broken instruments. But you see, broken instruments, when they are used by a professional, 
is beautiful. Arturo, our drummer, is an incredible drummer, as you guys can tell. But if you give Arturo a a, a wonderful drum set and he makes great music with it, you're going to be like, that was great. But if Arturo sits up here, which I know he can, he takes a couple buckets and some sticks and he makes an incredible song out of it, you're going to be like, wow, he is an incredible musician. You see, God uses broken instruments, us, and he makes beautiful music. He works good in your life, even though you're flawed, even though I'm flawed, and it's for his glory. So he tells us to go as a broken instrument because God is making music in your life even when he's silent, and then he gives you this promise. He says, listen, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. Even when you think I'm silent, even when you're struggling, even when it's hard, I'm with you. So go. Allow me to make beautiful music through you. Trust me with what I'm doing in your life. There are no coincidences. It's all providence. Will you pray with me?